The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. This episode contains descriptions of extreme violence and violence against a child resulting in death, which may be disturbing to some listeners. The subject matter of domestic violence and suicide are also covered. Listener discretion is advised. On January 22, 1998, in Kansas City, Missouri, a young teenage girl by the name of Jennifer Long suddenly vanished. After nine painstaking months of her family desperately scouring the area in search for her, the grisly truth about what happened to her finally surfaced. A man by the name of Wesley Perky, who had been passing through the city that fateful day, was the cause. After being caught for murdering an elderly woman, he offered to help the FBI solve another case. He would tell them exactly where the missing girl was, if they made a deal with him. After years of trying to manipulate the system, Wesley Perky finally agreed to give his full statement, which shockingly included the kind of gruesome details that horror movies are made of. Join me now as we look deep into the psyche of a man who committed one of the most brutal murders in Kansas and the unfortunate circumstances that led a trusting teenage girl into his snare. On the morning of January 22, 1998, Jennifer Ray Long had gotten herself ready for school like she had every weekday morning. On that particular day, she had decided to wear a pair of blue jeans and a white t-shirt. She was 16 years old, and she had recently transferred high schools in Kansas City. After her father had discovered, she'd been skipping classes regularly with one of her friends. Things hadn't been very easy for Jennifer growing up. When she was only five years old, her mother Glenda and her father R.B. parted ways. There was some domestic strife, and infidelity on the part of her father. And one day, her dad decided to leave. Although only five at the time, Jennifer's mother stated that she was very hurt by her father choosing to leave. As some time went on, Glenda developed a new relationship and married a man by the name of Dwayne. For many years, Jennifer was raised by her mother and her stepfather. Born on December 22, 1981, 
Jennifer's mother described her as a bubbly child with a great love for the outdoors, music, poetry, and sports. She was shy, but confident. The oldest of four step-siblings, Glenda stated that she would take them around wherever she went. She loved them so much, and they adored her too. Glenda recalled one fond memory on a cold winter's day, after it had just snowed. The younger siblings were excited to go out and play, but were unable to because they were sick. So Jennifer took it upon herself to go out and build a snowman for them, right in front of their house, so they could see it. She then came back inside and asked her siblings to go pick out items she could place on the snowmen for them. That was just the sweet and caring older sister she was. As time went on, Jennifer began to crave a deeper relationship with her biological father. And when she was about 10 years old, she decided to try moving in with him for a time to see if she could get to know him better. RB had just remarried, and it seemed that she was happy to have gained a new stepmom named Marilyn and a stepsister named Holly, who also happened to be similar in age. Michelle McDaniel, a childhood friend of Jennifer's, describes how she was first introduced to her through a mutual connection to Holly. I met my best friend Holly in kindergarten in South Kansas City. She and I fell in love with each other when we were five. We were totally inseparable. We were basically like sisters. We'd both been raised as only children, so we spent all of our free time together. When we were about 10, Holly's mom, Marilyn, met Jen's dad, RB, at a volleyball park in Kansas City and started dating. And, and I think within a year, they'd gotten married. I met Jen at the wedding. I think we were both around 10 and 11 years old. She was a really sweet girl. You could tell she kind of felt awkward in her own skin, but she was always smiley. She had red, rosy cheeks. She was really sweet and kind. She wanted to be close to her dad. I think they were establishing more of a relationship now that Jen had gotten a little bit older. I was a little bit jealous of her because I had always been the only person in Holly's life, the only contemporary, I guess. But there was a trip one time when Holly was coming up from Florida to visit and Marilyn had had me come to the house because we were all going to go meet Holly at the airport the next day. And without getting into too many embarrassing deep details on my part, um, I wasn't in really good shape that night. And Jen stayed up with me all night long and I was sick. I was vomiting and she was in the bathroom with me rubbing my back. 
I couldn't sleep, so she'd stayed up with me all night long. She didn't want me to have to be awake on my own. And it was the first time I'd ever really made the effort to do a one-on-one with Jen, because I think up until that point, I was just so jealous of her. But she didn't have those feelings towards me, and she was just so sweet and kind and helpful and and we we ended up talking a lot about our families and Jen never said anything outright but i know that she she was a writer to a degree she wrote poetry and i remember her handing me this big notebook filled with poems that she'd written and some of them were kind of dark about being lonely and about being sad at home as we spoke to michelle she recounted her overall perception of Jennifer's father, R.B., and an uncomfortable moment. My first impression of R.B., I wouldn't say was a good one. He always seemed like too young acting. Not that he was physically an age too young, but just mentally, mentally not an adult. I don't, I don't know how else to phrase that exactly. Sometimes he could be a little creepy. I think Jen, being a teenage girl, wanted a closer relationship with her dad and to a degree wanted his approval and wanted to to make him proud and to make him happy. But R.B. wasn't always kind and supportive. Jen was beautiful, but she always kind of felt awkward in her own skin, I think. And I feel like sometimes R.B. exploited that. Maybe not to hurt Jen, maybe unintentionally, but sometimes to prove a point. There was a trip where Marilyn and RB took Holly, Jen, and I camping, and we had loaded up the car. It was a station wagon, and it was packed full of stuff, and Jen and Holly and I were crammed in the back, and we had a really awesome weekend, and it was a lot of fun, and we slept out in tents and went fishing, and it was the last day or the second to last day we were all going to go swimming in the lake, and Holly and I had put on our swimming suits, and Jen had swimming trunks and a t-shirt that she wanted to wear, and RB kind of laid into her. I don't think his exact words were that she wasn't feminine enough, but I think she was supposed to get the point that she was supposed to assimilate to what Ollie and I were doing rather than what made her comfortable. It really upset her that he put her on the spot like that. It made her uncomfortable, and I it kind of sullied the trip, and that's one of the things I remember most from that trip was just how disappointed she she looked, how sad her face was. Glenda told us that while Jennifer was living with her father, it appeared to her that Jennifer's demeanor started to change. She became withdrawn and seemed unhappy. She never told her why, though. But about the time when Jennifer turned 15 years old, her father and her stepmother divorced. Jennifer decided to continue on living with her stepmother for a time and to not move with her dad or mother because she had already enrolled in a school in that district, and she knew her stepsister Holly would also be attending with her as well. During that time, 
it was discovered that Jen had been skipping school with another friend. When her father found out, he had her move back to her mother Glenda's house and they switched her to another high school. Glenda told us that while she was at that particular high school, she started encountering different problems. She reported being picked on by other students, and so her mother then started the process of having her switched to another school in their district. When we asked Michelle, Jennifer's childhood friend, if she recalls Jen having any difficulties at school, she responded by saying, I don't get the feeling that Jen loved school. I think it was obligatory. Of course, she was going to go. I feel like if she had had the option, she would have chosen to be at home. I think, honestly, if it had been on the table, Jen would have done great in a homeschooling environment. I think that probably would have been preferable to her, but she ended up going to school in the metro. Jennifer's difficulties at school with bullies plays a major role into what happened to Jennifer later. As we had mentioned earlier, she got up like she had every weekday morning. Glenda recalls that when she dropped her off that morning, she had told her that if anything bad happened at school that day, to call her stepdad, who would then come back and pick her up as he worked close by. Jennifer had also planned to take her driver's license test after school with her stepdad something that she had really been looking forward to. But at the end of the day, when Glenda returned home after work, she realized Jen wasn't at home. Glenda immediately called the driver of the school bus that Jen took home, and she discovered that Jennifer was never on the bus. In sheer panic, Glenda then rushed to the school to find out where she might be. The school reported to Glenda that Jennifer had been marked present for her first hour of class, but nothing after that. Apparently, part of the school's protocol was to ensure that all doors were locked during the class hours so that students couldn't leave on their own accord. But Jennifer was not there. She seemed to have vanished. In a frenzy, Glenda started calling around to all of Jennifer's friends and family, hoping she had just gone with one of them, but nothing. She then headed to the local police station to report her daughter missing, and she was told not to worry. They had suspected that Jen had run away, and that sooner or later, she would show up, but she didn't. As minutes, hours, and days passed by, to Glenda's horror, her daughter never came home and couldn't be found anywhere. In that moment, she knew that something was terribly wrong. It wasn't in her daughter's nature to just take off, especially since leading up to that day, She'd been excitedly planning her sister's fifth birthday party. She planned a Teletubbies-themed party and had thought of all the games and decorations. Her birthday was only a week away. Jennifer's family made thousands of flyers and posted them absolutely everywhere they could think of. 
hoping that someone would come forward and tell them where Jennifer was. They even attempted to get on the local news station, but were unable to without police clearance. They did, however, manage to get onto a radio station that happened to be one of Jennifer's favorites and sent out a message to her or anyone who might know where she was. But sadly, nothing. Glenda says she later got in touch with a children's missing person center and put messages out everywhere. She said she went crazy. This was totally out of character for Jennifer, and time was running out. The prospects of finding Jennifer alive were becoming less and less hopeful. There were all kinds of leads, but Glenda knew in her heart she would never see her daughter alive again. But despite her gut feelings, she refused to stop looking for her. The devastation of losing her daughter had created a disastrous ripple effect on the rest of Glenda's life. Jennifer's mother found herself unable to cope with the loss of her daughter and pretty soon found that her marriage was collapsing. Shortly after that, she found herself living on the streets. Her unimaginable grief had made it impossible for her to function. Just shy of a year since Jen first went missing, the truth of what happened to her that morning and where she'd been all that time had finally come to light. Glenda already knew deep down that she would never see her daughter alive again. But nothing could have prepared her for the inconceivable horror surrounding her baby girl's disappearance. Bad things didn't happen in that area. People didn't just vanish. Michelle describes her perception of the town she and Jennifer grew up in. The area that I lived in was idyllic to me as a child. I spent all day, every day, all of my free time on my bicycle. I, I didn't have to check in unless it was lunch or until the street lights came on. It was a really quaint, quiet neighborhood. Everybody knew everybody on the street that I'd grown up on. It kind of looked like a 60s dream. But the picturesque image of what had seemed to be a safe and pleasant city was soon to be shattered. Glenda finally discovered that on the morning of January 22nd, 1998, after attending only about an hour of classes, Jen had decided to leave the school. Glenda was aware that Jen had been picked on and bullied by other students attending her high school, and as previously mentioned, was in the process of moving her again. 
Jen's friend said that on that particular morning, a group of girls had actually threatened to beat her up and so in fear had left the school. Why she hadn't chosen to call her stepfather like her mother had suggested that morning is unknown. It is also unclear where exactly Jennifer was headed, but at some point along the way, as she was walking, she had the fatal misfortune of running into a man by the name of Wesley Ira Perky. A coincidental encounter that she could never have predicted would later cost her her life. After going for a job interview with a plumbing company, Wesley Perky smoked half a rock of crack cocaine and began driving around when he spotted Jennifer walking along the sidewalk. According to his own statement, Perky said he then pulled up beside her and asked her if she wanted to party. She agreed and climbed inside his white 1998 Ford pickup and they headed to the local general store where he purchased gin and juice. After hopping back into his pickup, Perky then said he announced to Jennifer that he needed to head back to his home which was roughly a three-hour drive away in another state, he admitted that she then asked to be let out of his truck, but he refused. It was at that point that things must have become absolutely terrifying for the 16-year-old girl, whose only intention of leaving school that day was to get away from bullies who had been tormenting her. It was a split-moment decision, and Wesley Perky took advantage of this opportunistic moment. Perky said he then reached inside of his glove box and pulled out a boning knife, which he then placed under his right thigh. He made it very clear to Jennifer that he had no intentions of letting her out of his pickup truck. Jennifer then spent the next three excruciating hours with Perky traveling back to his home unaware of what was about to happen next. Wesley knew full well that his wife and stepkids would be out for the day and no doubt had been playing out his next steps for the whole ride in his mind while Jennifer sat in absolute terror. Upon arriving at the Perky family home, he said he then took Jennifer immediately down into a room that was located in their basement. At that point in time, nobody was even aware that Jennifer was missing, let alone that she'd been taken three hours away to another state, now in a strange man's basement. All the while, Perky continued to threaten Jennifer with the boning knife and ordered her to remove her clothing. 
Beyond frightened at this point, the sweet, innocent 16-year-old girl who had been so excited to take her driver's license test later that day and had been planning her sister's birthday party did exactly as she was told. He ended up raping her and from what he says when it was over she told him she had been a virgin and she said she just wanted to go home And I guess that was what scared him into action. After Jennifer disclosed the true innocence of her nature, something struck a chord with him, and he had become fearful about what he had done. Wesley said that Jennifer then made an attempt to escape the basement, but before she was able to get upstairs, he grabbed her leg and forced her back down to the ground. As the two struggled with one another, Perky's anger erupted, and he became enraged with her defiance. It was then that he grabbed a hold of his bony knife once again, and attacked Jennifer with it. He ended up murdering her in the basement. In the last moments of Jennifer's life, she fought with all her might to live. She did everything she could in her power to get away. But she was no match for the ex-con who had experience fighting other grown men throughout his life. Jennifer didn't stand a chance. During Wesley's confession to the FBI, he stated, It's not like in the movies. They don't die right away. It took a little time to die. He said he then took Jennifer's body and placed it into a large toolbox also located in the basement. He then cleaned up the surrounding area and headed out to a local bar where he then drank for the next several hours. After he was done drinking, Perky headed to a local Sears store where he purchased an electric chainsaw and headed back to his home. Over the course of the next few days, while Perky's wife and stepchildren were away from the house, he used the chainsaw to dismember Jennifer's body. After finishing this stage of his very methodical disposal process, he then started placing parts of her body 
into several plastic bags, combined with leaves and other debris from his backyard. His plan was to burn the bags in his fireplace, using several cords of wood he had purchased along with some diesel fuel to help keep the fire burning hot. Perky then gathered up all of Jennifer's remains from the fireplace and headed to a septic pond where he dumped all of what was left of Jennifer. But his work wasn't finished. The evidence of his gruesome dismemberment was not easy to hide. So he got his stepchildren to help him clean up the basement with bleach. While Jennifer's few remains began to slowly sink into the septic pond somewhere in Clearwater, Kansas, her family continued to frantically search the neighborhoods looking for her. While Jennifer's family weeped for days and months on end, Wesley Perky was still applying for jobs and breathing in the fresh air of each new day. While the foundation of Jennifer's family began to crack and crumble, brought on by the sheer force of grief, Wesley Perky was going on about his daily life, thinking he had gotten away with kidnapping, raping, brutally murdering, and dismembering the body of an innocent 16-year-old girl. So who was this man, capable of committing such a gruesome attack of opportunity and not miss a beat? And how did he find himself crossing paths with Jennifer that fateful day? Let's go back now to when it all began for Wesley Perky and try to uncover where exactly all the madness had begun. On January 6, 1952, Wesley Ira Perky was born into a family where violence and abuse was to be expected. Both parents, Velma and Jack, were alcoholics. According to Wesley, cheap wine was such a common sight in his home that at an early age he could recognize the presence just by the smell of it. He remembers seeing hundreds of empty bottles laying around the house as well as in his father's car. We wanted to know how Wesley's childhood experience may have affected him and shaped him into the man he had become. We decided to ask Dr. Julie Kin, a clinical and research psychologist, to provide some insight. The information she provided to us was for the purpose of insight only, based on peer-reviewed literature about others who have shown similar symptoms to Perky. It is not for the purpose of diagnosis. Dr. Julie Kin 
tells us how having alcoholic parents who demonstrated violence towards one another might affect a child. The literature tells us that alcohol abuse by parents can predict alcohol abuse by kids. In fact, the children who are most likely to abuse alcohol when they grow up are those who either see their parents abusing alcohol or who are not around alcohol at all. Wesley's parents solved conflicts. They solved it using might is right. So this is an important lesson that he learned, one that was probably pretty dangerous for him to ignore. In fact, it probably was a safety measure that he learned might is right because you don't want to pick a fight with the wrong person, especially when that wrong person might be your father or mother. Perky's older brother remembers being sexually abused by his mother as early as age 11 or 12. Gary has stated that his mother used to force him to have sex with her in the bathroom on numerous occasions. He never knew that his younger brother Wesley experienced the same as the two never talked about it. Gary would later find out that their mother had also sexually assaulted Wesley starting as early as the age of six until he was 14 years old. Wesley also remembers seeing their mother involved sexually with various other partners in their home after their father left. When Perky was about 14 years old, his father began offering to pay for women to have sex with him. According to Dr. Peterson, a forensic psychologist in Kansas City, these experiences rendered Perky unable to engage normally with anyone in a sexual way and caused him to seek sexual gratification in a scripted and controlled manner. According to Wesley, he'd often also be physically punished whenever he made a mistake. He'd be slapped, shoved, and pushed. At some point during Wesley's adolescence, he seemed to have caught a lucky break when his great aunt offered to take him in. His aunt provided him with a place free from alcohol and abuse, and he caught a glimpse of what life could be like. Aunt Gaga, as she was affectionately referred to as, gave Wesley helpful bits of wisdom and a warm home environment instead of the one that consisted of abuse and isolation. Life started to look up for young Wesley although he still often managed to get himself into trouble. While he was still young, Perky served 45 days in a county prison for unpaid traffic fines. He found himself on a work detail that cared for canine dogs. After serving his time, the canine program allowed him to take one of the German Shepherd puppies home with him, a puppy he decided to name King. In an essay later published by the American Prison Writing Archive, Wesley wrote about a memory of him coming home one afternoon to his aunt's house after basketball practice. As he approached the front door, he realized that King wasn't waiting for him like he usually did. As he entered inside, he suddenly caught a whiff of cheap booze, a smell that he was all too familiar with but hadn't smelt in a long time since moving in with his aunt, who didn't drink. As he stepped further into his aunt's home, 
he noticed that there was an empty liquor bottle sitting on the kitchen table, and Wesley's aunt wasn't at home. Wesley continued walking further and further into his aunt's home, finally reaching his bedroom, where he then discovered his father laying on his bed. But he wasn't sleeping. There was blood spattered on his bedroom wall and a gun laying on his dead father's lap. In that moment, he wasn't sad, but angry. Because this place had become so sacred to him and now being defiled by what he considered a selfish act by his father to kill himself in his bedroom. We wanted to know if the accumulation of all these traumatic childhood experiences could have caused Wesley Perky to become the man he was and to commit the horrible crimes he had. And this is what Dr. Julie Kin had to say. The most important thing I want to say today is that most people who experience horrific abuse like Wesley did do not go on to rape and murder others. Many, many people, unfortunately, experience sexual abuse, physical abuse as children, and experience domestic violence between their parents. It doesn't make them killers or rapists. So what happened to Wesley after childhood? Well, unfortunately, Perky seemed to continue to make one bad mistake after another and began a long history of criminal behavior. Starting in 1969, when he was only 17 years old, he was convicted on 14 different accounts of violent thefts, assaults, weapons charges, and escaping from custody. Then after a 1975 burglar conviction, when he was 23 years old, he was paroled. While on parole for a second time, Wesley and an accomplice decided to rob a man and then shot him twice in the head. Luckily, the victim survived and Wesley was apprehended and sentenced to 15 years to life. While in prison, Perky was often reported being uncooperative and violent. He defied prison authorities whenever it suited him, and rehabilitation did not seem to be in the cards for him. A psychological assessment of Perky in 1992 concluded that he presented as a classical psychopath and his antisocial tendencies were modified by his education and intelligence. By 1996, however, things seemed to change for Perky. He had become more cooperative and started working in the prison paint shop. He later earned an associate's degree in literature from a local community college and also joined an Alcoholics Anonymous group. Authorities felt they were seeing improvements and had some hope for Wesley Perky after all. 
1997, family and friends of Wesley Perkey wrote to the parole board on his behalf, stating that it was their belief he had been successfully rehabilitated and was ready to be a part of society again. However, prosecutors and his previous victims all objected, pointing to Perkey's continual criminal history. The man who had survived being shot by Perkey said Wesley should be kept in prison paying for his crimes, as I always will. But despite all their objections, Wesley was released on parole in March of 1997. After Perky left prison, he met a woman who had children, and they later married. They had a house together, and Perky started looking for employment. It was after one of his interviews that he met and killed Jennifer, disposing of her body so there was no trace of her. It wouldn't be until nine months later that the truth would be revealed in a confession by Perky himself. After killing Jennifer, Wesley Perky managed to find a job working with the Kansas City Plumbing Company. On October 26, he was sent out to a woman's house by the name of Mary Ruth Bales, an elderly woman who lived alone. Upon arriving at Mrs. Bales' home, Perky informed her that the particular plumbing job she needed was really expensive, but that he'd gladly do the work for her under the table if she agreed to pay him $70 up front. So Mary Bales agreed to pay Perky $70 in cash. He then told her that he needed to leave but would return the following morning to do the work. After leaving Mary's home, Perky used the money to buy several rocks of crack cocaine. He then rented a motel room and paid a woman to have sex with him. Early that next morning, Perky drove back to Mary's home with the woman he had hired the previous night in tow. He informed the woman that was accompanying him that there was someone who lived in the house that owed him money. Perky then left the woman sitting in his vehicle as he proceeded into Mary's home with a toolbox. While Mrs. Bales was still laying in bed, Perky struck her multiple times in the head with a claw hammer until she was dead. An autopsy report would later show that Mary tried to defend herself and had defensive wounds on the back of her hands. But Wesley Perky showed her no mercy. Instead, once Mary was dead and no longer a concern, Perky decided to stay for a while with the woman he had hired. For the next several hours, the two of them injected themselves with drugs, smoked crack cocaine, they even helped themselves to the food that was in Mary's kitchen.
Perky had every intention of getting rid of the evidence of his gruesome crime, just as he had done with Jennifer, so returned the following day with two gallons of gasoline in the back of his pickup truck. As he was pulling out the gasoline canisters, a neighbor spotted Perky in Mary's backyard and reported him to the police. After being apprehended and placed into custody, Perky pleaded guilty to murdering Mrs. Bales and was facing a life sentence. However, in a misguided attempt to avoid serving a life sentence in a state prison for murdering Mary, Perky contacted the FBI about the interstate abduction, rape, and murder of Jennifer Long. Hoping to serve his life sentence in the relatively more comfortable surroundings of a federal penitentiary, Perky asked to make a deal. He would help investigators solve the missing case of Jennifer Long if they would agree to move him from a Kansas state prison to a federal prison. Once they'd heard his confession, investigators agreed to prosecute the case on a federal level. Only Wesley Perky had forgotten one thing. He failed to consider the nature of his actions which would make his case a capital crime. Perky would qualify for the death penalty under federal statutes. After Perky stood trial for the death of Jennifer Long, her family shared the impact of her death. Her mother Glenda lamented, I lost my house. I lost my job. I lost my car. I lost my husband. I lost my will. I lost a lot of great things. But most of all, I lost her. After deliberating, the jury found nine aggravating factors beyond a reasonable doubt and on November 2003, determined that Perky should be sentenced to death. Since the deliberation, Perky has made many attempts to appeal their findings. But to the great relief of Jennifer's family, Mrs. Bale's family, and any other person he has harmed in his lifetime, every time he has made an appeal, they have been denied and his sentence has been upheld. In one appeal, Perky claimed he didn't have the capacity or intent to murder Mrs. Bales. As the result of drugs he had ingested at the time and because he was being poisoned by his wife and others over a period of several months prior to the murder. Family members of Perky's, fellow inmates and religious counselors have attested to him being a changed man. We asked Dr. Julie Kin what the likelihood was for someone like Perky to be reformed from all his previous history and criminal behavior. Behaviors are ingrained and they're habitual and really difficult to break. For a sexual offender, rape is more than just the act of sexual assault. It's also the view of others, of this person as a transaction, as an object, of having power over the person as an indication of one's own self-worth, for example. 
It's more than desire, of course. In fact, I would argue very little of sexual assault has to do with desire. So we can assume that breaking this kind of behavior is very, very difficult. People can change their behaviors and even their thought processes, but it's difficult. It requires insight, but even more than that, it requires a desire for the change. The person has been experiencing some sort of pleasant or rewarding sensations from these behaviors, even if they're then accompanied by years of guilt and remorse. So in other words, stopping this behavior needs an even greater reward or reinforcement. Several studies indicate that when sex offenders are able to personalize their victims and think of others as humans rather than objects by starting with thoughts of their own children, this is one key to helping break their pattern. Again, there's always a risk. There's no one surefire approach to treating sex offenders yet. Can it be done? Can someone rehabilitate? Yes, absolutely. The literature has plenty of case studies. But do we know the magic way to make that happen? No, not yet. Glenda, Jennifer's mother and friends, feel that justice will not be served until the day Wesley Perky finally pays for his heinous crimes in the way he was sentenced almost 20 years ago. She doesn't believe that his childhood experiences are an excuse for his actions. In fact, stated that plenty of people have had bad childhoods and never did the bad things he did. When we asked her what her thoughts were on the multitude of appeals he's made over the years, she stated she didn't believe it was right after what he did to her daughter. She doesn't believe he should have ever been let out of jail after he shot the man who survived. She stated, You can't take a child, rape her, stab her 16 times, cut her up with a chainsaw, burn her up and throw her bones into a septic pond, and be human. Glenda told us she still speaks to Jennifer every single day. And every year on her birthday, they look at pictures of her and remember the things they used to do together. They always make her favorite meal, which was her mother's red beans and rice, smoked sausage, and cornbread. Every single year, they light a candle for Jennifer and keep it lit all day in memory of her. Glenda hopes that what Jennifer will be most remembered for was not the horrific way she was murdered, but for her compassion and her kindness, her trust and love for people, along with her ambition to do something positive with her life. Sadly, because there was nothing left of Jennifer to recover, the family was never able to hold a proper memorial for her, and there is nowhere for them to place flowers. This is something we would like to help change. We hope you'll stay tuned about how we can help. To this day, Wesley Perky awaits his execution at a Terre Haute, Indiana prison facility.
as far as Marilyn is concerned, she thinks about Jen every day, all the time. And I know that she blames herself for what happened and thinks about how she should have been there for her. And Holly misses her. I mean, that was her sister. And I haven't been able to have a lot of conversations with her mom. I I did have one. And, you know, her mom cried and talked about how much she misses her and about how Jen has younger siblings that were just babies at the time. And they've grown up knowing Jen. She's still part of their family. And they still think about her every day. For me personally, I'm a mom. And I have two 16-year-old girls. And I look at Jen and just such a silly, simple thing. It should not have cost her her life. I can't imagine, as a parent, one of my kids paying in that way. I feel like I wanted to get Jen's story out to people to honor her and to remind people of her. I want teenage girls to be more careful. I want parents to be thankful. I'd like to be able to Google Jen's name and pull up a picture of Jen. That doesn't happen. You have to Google Wesley Perky's name. And then a picture of her comes up. And I hope someday that changes and he's not the linchpin of her legacy. The only way I can honor Jen properly is to get her name out there. And maybe, maybe after her story gets heard, then I'll have time to be sad about Jen. But I don't think I have until now. It makes me upset to Google his name to figure out where he is in the process and to see he's just filed more complaints, like his food is cold or his cot is lumpy or he's not getting enough access to paper. Whatever his complaints are, I really don't care because Jen wasn't given any of those opportunities. She wasn't given any last-minute comforts. She wasn't allowed anything in her last few moments. She was alone. We would like to thank our new Patreon supporters. Christy G., Janine M., Melissa L., Wendy H., Josh M., Megan D., Joanne P., Vanessa S., Henrik H., Casey B., Sharon M., and Maggie James. And now I would like to introduce to you two podcasts. Turn of Phrases. Please listen carefully. Salutations, and thank you for lending me your ears for a moment. This is Brisky from the Turn of Phrases podcast. Turn of Phrases is a show all about exploring the origins and history of idioms, metaphors, superstitions, old wives' tales, and more. 
New episodes come out every Monday, so come along with me as we turn some phrases. And Twisted Philly. You don't have to be from Philadelphia to love the Twisted Philly podcast. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly podcast. Hi, I'm Dina Marie, the host of Twisted Philly. Join me every week for some of my favorite stories from the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection. We'll talk about true crime, haunted history, legends and local lore, plus some of my most favorite places to visit all around Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. You can follow me on social media, on Facebook at The Twisted Philly Podcast, and on Twitter at Twisted underscore Philly. And you can find my show on all major podcast apps. Plus, if you're a Patreon supporter, you get access to exclusive content twice a month that isn't available to other listeners. Join me every week in Twisted Philly. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au slash G-E